You're listening to a podcast from West Wind Church. For more information, visit our website at westwindchurch.org. Amen. Good morning. Happy Mother's Day. As Caitlin noted, it is a, a bittersweet day. One of my favorite verses that uh, is really hard to implement, but I think really important to remember, is Romans 12, 15, which just says simply, rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep, right? And on today, we'll probably have both. And just know that it's okay, regardless. If you're rejoicing, we rejoice with you. Uh, I know that there's some brand new moms we're so excited for you, Uh, even some that just happened this week that we're excited for. Uh, But then too, if you're weeping, that's okay too. Um, That's um, just the, the spirit of today uh, is fine with both. It's be comfortable with both. Um, but for believers, let's, again, rejoice with those who are rejoicing and weep with those who weep. Real quick, I want to give a shout-out to my mom. She's watching uh, <laughs> technically from Florida right now, uh, but she will be heading to Alaska for her and my dad are going on an Alaska cruise this week, so don't be uh, jealous for them. They will be freezing uh, <laughs> as they go to to Alaska. And of course, shout out to my wife, Joanna. It's a joy to get to watch and just to be the front row seat of the mom of who you are to our children, our five kids. Uh, I pinch myself regularly, just um, really in amazement for all that she does and all the talents that she gives and how selfless she is in sharing those with us. If you have your Bibles, it's Ephesians chapter 1. We'll look at verses 3 to 14 today, looking at just how God is worthy of our praise. But I'll begin reading in verse 1 and just read verse 1 to verse 14 this morning. Verse 1 starts off again, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by God's will, to the faithful saints in Christ Jesus at Ephesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavens in Christ. For he chose us in him before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless in love before him. He predestined us to be adopted as sons through Jesus Christ for himself according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace that he lavished on us in the beloved one. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace that he richly poured out on us with all wisdom and understanding. He made known to us the mystery of his will according to the good pleasure that he purposed in Christ as a plan at the right time to bring everything in or everything together in Christ, both things in heaven and things on earth in him. In him we have also received an inheritance because we were predestined according to the plan of the one who works out everything in agreement with the purpose of his will so that we who have already put our hope in Christ might bring praise to his glory. In him you also were sealed sealed with the promised Holy Spirit when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and when you believed. The Holy Spirit is the down payment of our inheritance until the redemption of of the possession to the praise of his glory. So real simple title, worthy of praise. And that's what Paul is just exuberating this morning as he is reflecting on the fact that, that he is writing to saints who are faithful, uh, and he, he wants to just to bestow upon them God's peace and his grace 
And that just makes him well up in this idea of worship and praising of who God the Father is. We see this when he writes to 2 Corinthians. We also see this when Peter writes in 1 Peter. And it's oftentimes communicated through the Psalms when David is just trying to explain what is going on in his heart as he is beholding the gracious and loving God who has created everything. And so it just makes me think about worship, right? And we see worship all throughout our society, right? You see it at concerts, you see it at sporting events, uh, all kinds of different events. And, and it's just funny how we respond to worship. And one of the things I want to argue this morning is that everyone was created to worship. It's not a matter of if you worship, it's a matter of whom or of what do you worship. A real popular concert right now is the Taylor Swift Eras Tour, right? Anyone got tickets? Oh, yes. Okay. Well, um, I'm actually surprised. So tickets right now are really hard to get because they're between $50 to $500. And in fact, they're selling out so quick that people are literally paying up to thousands of dollars for tickets. Uh, in fact, there was a listing this week for $33,000 for two tickets to go see Taylor Swift. One, one uh, uh, young lady wrote that she actually spent $5,500 on two tickets to get floor seats and immediately regretted it as soon as she purchased them, right? Because that's a lot of money, right? But we, we're created to worship. We're created to belong to something bigger than ourselves. And, and man, in concerts, you see that, right? In football games, you see that, where people will yell and scream and, and celebrate something bigger than themselves. But what that really is pointing us to is that we were created to worship our Creator. I have a quote here from one of my favorite theologians. Uh, his name is Gregory Beale. His Official name is G.K. Bill is how he presents himself in his books. But he notes that what people revere, they resemble, either for ruin or restoration. What people revere, they resemble, either for ruin or restoration. What he's getting at there is uh, what you worship, you become. And if you worship something that is infallible, like uh, people or pleasure or power or something like that, it will literally ruin you. But if you worship Jesus as the Son of God who has redeemed us from our sin, what literally is happening is you are being restored into the image of God that you were created to be. So you become, or we, what we revere, we resemble either for ruin or restoration. We were made to worship. Everyone does it. We take good things and we make them ultimate things. And what happens is the only way to correct this, the only way to correct our wrong worship, the only way to begin to flourish as God has created us to worship as human beings is to be transformed by the power of the gospel. That's the only way to correctly worship as a being who was created to worship. And so I just have just a summary statement here. The gospel brings restoration. The gospel brings restoration to our worship as we behold how worthy the Lord is to receive praise. God is worthy of our praise. And in fact, Paul is just so captured by this idea of grace that we have received that brings us peace with the living God that he just breaks out into this um, long sentence of praise. Literally, it's one sentence. Verse 3 to verse 14. One long sentence in the Greek. It's 202 words, right? It's my kind of sentence, if you know who I am, right? So I don't like to be, I, you know, I have a PhD, but not in grammar. 
and uh, the elders can tell you that, my wife and kids can tell you that, and uh, you'll soon, soon learn that as well. Um, that I do not have a PhD in grammar. So 202 words, one long sentence, that's right up my alley, right? Um, but Paul is acknowledging, again, the importance of what it means to be in Christ. That's what he said um, to, in the opening verse, right? Uh, to those who are in Christ, the faithful saints in Christ Jesus at Ephesus. What does that mean? Well, that causes him to praise God for what it means that we are actually in Christ, that that is our identity. So we begin and in this section, actually this section has three repetitions of this just breaking out of praise to the triune God. In fact, God is the subject of almost every single main verb in this passage. This is a God-centered, gospel-centered passage about what it means to be saved. And that should then lead us to worship. So the first point, God is worthy of our praise because the Father chose us. This is verses 1 to 3. Verse 3, he says, Blessed is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavens in Christ. Literally, that term, blessed, is praiseworthy, right? Praiseworthy is God. He is worthy of our praise. He is the source of every blessing in which we enjoy. Literally, everything that we enjoy comes from God our Father. He is worthy of our praise. And secondly, this means, uh, sorry, the means in which the blessing comes to us and the means in which the way we receive this blessing is only by being in Christ. It's only through the Lord Jesus. Blessed is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with every spiritual blessings in the heavens in Christ. It is only in Christ that we can receive the blessings that God has for us as our heavenly Father. That phrase, in Christ or in Him, is going to be used 11 times just in this passage alone. And just indirectly, it's going to be mentioned about being in Jesus or with Jesus 15 times, right? So this is, again, the core of what it means to be a believer. What it means to be a Christian or not a Christian is whether or not you are in Christ or not in Christ. And then that defines your true reality of who you are. So your true reality is not what your talents are, what your family history are, what your bank account says, or what your time is given to. That's not your true identity. Your true identity is either you are in Christ or you are not in Christ. First John says it this way, he who has the Son has life, and he who doesn't, doesn't. So your true identity is in Jesus. Now the, the question is, are you submitting to the authority of what the Scripture says about that? Or are you trying to find your identity in so many different things? Paul is rejoicing that we are in Christ as being believers. These blessings are not merely spiritual because they concern the soul, but he says he's blessed us with every spiritual blessing. He says uh, that these uh, are derived actually from the Holy Spirit through the work of Christ. So even in verse 3 here, we have this, this beginning of this understanding of how the Trinity is at work in our salvation, right? In Ephesians chapter 1, this is a beautiful passage to argue for a Trinitarian perspective, that we have one God and three persons. And Paul's going to mention all three of them interchangeably as they work out through our salvation. We see, again, before time existed, God the Father chose us, right? And so we are blessed in Christ, but notice also he says that we are blessed in the heavens, right? So again, blessed is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing 
in the heavens in Christ. So this is a unique phrase for Paul. He only uses it here in the book of Ephesians, but he uses it five times in this letter. And I love the way that John uh, Stott uh, kind of summarize what, what Paul is getting at here. He's really referencing, he says, the unseen world of spiritual reality, where the principality and powers continue to operate, in which Christ now reigns supreme with his people, reigning with them, and in which God blesses us with every spiritual blessing in Christ. In other words, there's a reason why we have so many comic books that talk about the multiverse or we have so many different um, movies that talk about some outer space or some, some other reality, right? And, and it's because there is another reality, a spiritual reality that is going on. And we tend to forget that that is a reality in which we live in. And we also forget that that's a, a reality in which Jesus is reigning in. Now let me just give you a, an Old Testament example of this reality. So in the book of Kings, you have uh, in 2 Kings chapter 6, you have the Syrians who keep coming and fighting with the Israelites in the northern kingdom. And uh, it's just you know, constant battle, constant warfare going on. Uh, and, and finally, the, uh, the king of Syria gets this message. Basically, he keeps trying to come in and attack Israel, but he keeps losing, basically. Like, and what happens is uh, someone finally just speaks up and says, well, king, listen, there's a prophet in Israel. His name is Elisha, and he basically knows everything that you say. And so everything you say, even in your secret, he knows. And so Israel's ready when we come to, to, to face them in battle. And he's like, that can't be true. So he basically sets out one more time. He sends all of his men to go and to fight Israel. And when Elisha's servant hears that all of these Syrians are coming to fight, he freaks out. Because wouldn't you freak out, right? Like, I mean, like if you hear people are coming to raid your house, right? That would freak you out. He rightly freaks out. But this is what Elisha does. He, he actually says, look, I want you to see reality as it really is. And, and basically, the heavens are pulled back, and what he sees is chariots of fire all around Israel, basically fighting the battle for them. And so as Syria comes, they're not able to conquer, right? And when Elisha goes to the king of Israel, the king is like, well, what should we do with them now that they're here and they can't attack us? Should we just basically go out and destroy them? And actually, this is what, it's a beautiful passage, this is what Elisha says. He says, no, go and feed them. And so the kingdom of Israel feeds the kingdom of Syria, and from that point on, Syria never attacks Israel again. What Elisha was getting at is there are spiritual things happening all the time, all around us, and that we are to trust God in, in his working. And so that's a, a beautiful reminder that there are things going on we cannot see. And, and what Paul is saying here is we have been blessed with every spiritual blessing possible and that Jesus reigns right now. So you might be going through a difficult time. What the point of all of that was is to assure you and to give you hope that God is in control. No, no matter what we're going through, we are blessed as believers in Christ in every spiritual blessing through the spiritual realm. So again, we have this Trinitarian emphasis in these verses um, that every blessing of the Holy Spirit has been given to us by the Father if we are in the Son. Now the rest of the passage is going to detail how God has blessed us in Christ in the past, 
Again, the first point really alludes to that. He chose us in the past, but also in the present, what he is doing. As you believe in the present, what happens? The Bible says that we become adopted as sons and daughters, but also in the future when all things will be united through Christ. So look at verse 4. He says, For he chose us in him before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless in love before him. This is the grace that Paul is getting at in the introduction. Paul reaches back to before time existed to explain how God-centered our salvation is. Before time existed, God determined in himself to bring glory to his Son by making us his own children through the redeeming work of his Son. And why? Why, would, why? why did God do that before time existed, before anything else existed? Why? Because he wanted to create a people for himself to be what? Holy and blameless. Again, this should remind us of grace because we know we are not people who are holy and blameless. I remember holding Hannah as a brand new baby 16 years ago and just thinking how perfect and innocent she was just sitting in my arm. But it wasn't long before I realized that she was a sinner too, right? And if, you, if you've experienced that, you know exactly what I'm talking about, right? It's just we are born into sin, right? There is no hope that the next baby might be born without sin and might live to be perfect, right? There is no hope for that. No one is holy and no one is blameless. Therefore, that God intended to create a holy and blameless people shows the grace that he has, even from the very beginning. He knew that he would be giving us free will, and he knew what we would do with that free will. What would we do? Reject him. That we would choose to be unholy and blameworthy. But through Jesus, we have been redeemed to be in him. And why do we... What are we to do with that reality? We are to walk then in holiness and to be blameless. So Paul then repeats this truth in verses 5 and 6, just emphasizing. He says again, he predestined us to be adopted as sons and daughters, of course, through Jesus Christ for himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace that he lavished on us in the beloved one. So election is not new in the New Testament. It's not it's not something that's been invented by St. Augustine or John Calvin or Martin Luther. From Genesis through Revelation, the Bible speaks about election because it's an essential part of God's plan of the story of God. In the Old Testament, oh man, it's an amazing story, right? You have Adam and Eve. They reject the truth about God. They're kicked out of the, of, out of the garden. It says that they have two sons, right? Cain and Abel, and we know what happens with them, right? Cain rises up and kills his brother Abel. And then another son, Seth, is born. And then from Seth to Noah, you have this just genealogy of name after name given. And then Noah is said that he walks with the Lord, that he pleases the Lord. And yet society itself is so wicked that God brings the flood to bring judgment. And then after the flood, what happens? Well, Noah and his sons show that they're still not perfect. That didn't fix the problem correctly. And from Noah to Abraham, again, we have this other genealogy. But here's what's interesting about Abraham. The Bible tells us that Abraham was a pagan not worshiping the living God. But what happened? God in his mercy spoke to Abraham and chose Abraham and said, Abraham. And what did Abraham say? Uh, here I am. <laughs> and then what did God say? Go. 
Go to the nation that I will tell you, and I will make you a nation. I will give you blessing. I will give you an inheritance. I will give you a land. I will give you, nations will come from you. Kings will come from you. And Abraham, in faith then, and in responsibility, responds. But God was the God who was intervening. He was the one who was choosing. You even see this later on. Isaac has two sons. Abraham has Isaac, then Isaac has Esau and Jacob, and and Isaac's going to bless Esau, but God didn't choose Esau. He chose Jacob. And so you have that wonderful story where even in faith it says that after Isaac gets it wrong, that he understands that God God was sovereign over his mistake. And he trusts the Lord in his sovereignty and blesses Jacob. You see this later on when, when the, the king David is chosen, right? David wasn't the oldest. He wasn't even the middle son, right? He was one of the youngest sons, if not the youngest son. And he is the one who is chosen to be king of the nation of Israel. And so this idea of election is from Genesis to Revelation. Again, God intervenes because he is a loving and gracious God. What, what the Bible makes it clear is no one deserves salvation. The Bible says, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus. So why election is, and why election is essential, so is the responsibility of man. So the Bible doesn't present one or the other. It actually presents both. And if you teeter-totter one to the other, then, then your, your theology becomes inconsistent, right? So the Bible fully says that God is sovereign, but it also says fully that man is responsible. And we see this even in this passage in verse 13. And so the responsibility of man is just as essential as the sovereignty of God. Just the same is true for the identity of Jesus. He's fully God, and yet he's fully man. And the, the, the Bible authors, when they're writing, they don't, they don't argue all their points. They'll just give them. And it's, us to, it's up to us to just say, is that authoritative in my life or not? And I hope you would say that it is. And then trust what the Bible says. So the Bible says that God is fully sovereign, but man is also fully responsible. And so in our culture, we've tended to pick sides, but the Bible just presents one unified presentation of both the sovereignty of God and the responsibility of man. And so what we should do then is we should rightly understand that our salvation is complete. Why? Because it's not about what you have done. It's about what Jesus has done and what God has done in history past. And so therefore, you can have assurance of faith. But then it also should lead you to humility, to understand that, look, there's nothing that I've done to deserve this, but God in his mercy and grace has done this, and then he's called me to do something in response to it, to walk in holiness, to walk in light, to walk in truth. Jesus doesn't say, just sit tight, I'm going to fix everything. No, what does he say? Take up your cross and follow me. He even gives us grace and enables us to do that by sending us the Spirit, which we'll see that later on. And so this should strengthen our assurance of faith. It should lead us to humility, and it should give us the desire to live lives that are holy and blameless to the Lord. And you know, there's just some things, again, that if God wanted us to know, He would tell us. One of my favorite verses is in the Old Testament. It's Deuteronomy chapter 29, verse 29. I think I have a slide for this one. It says, the secret things belong to the Lord, our God. But the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may do all the words of this law. In other words, 
what God has revealed in his Bible is sufficient through the Scripture. And what he has not revealed, we shouldn't worry about. Like we shouldn't uh, worry, be trying to seek some uh, spiritual darkness or some unforetold things that is not found in the Scripture. In fact, the practice of divination in the Old Testament is clearly marked as being wrong, sinful against the Lord. That's what the King Saul does and uh, is removed from being king of Israel because he does it. The secret things belong to the Lord, but what the things that are revealed belong to us. And God has revealed so much about his plan and his character. In fact, that's what Paul's going to get at, that it's the mystery, the mystery of God's will that he would unite Israelites and Gentiles together and form a new people of God. That has been given to us. We can know that. What is clear throughout Scripture, again, is that God is loving, he is gracious, he is wise, he is sovereign. Before time began, the relationship of Jesus and the church was in the mind of God that through the work of Jesus, we would be adopted as sons and daughters of the living God. And that that would bring the Lord pleasure to do that. So just know that. God is pleased to save you. He is pleased to save anyone who will call on his name. He is pleased to adopt you as sons and daughters into his kingdom. So God is worthy of our praise because he, the Father, chose us. Secondly, uh, God is worthy of our praise because the Son has redeemed us. So look at verses uh, 7 and 8. It says, In him, which would be Jesus, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according, again, to the riches of his grace that he richly poured out on us with all wisdom and understanding. Now, Man, I'm a perfectionist. Um, I'm not a big gamer. I'm not, not big on video games. And one of the reasons why is because I'm a perfectionist. Meaning, like, when I was a kid, if I played a baseball game, if I was winning 100 to nothing but didn't pitch a perfect game, if I gave up one run, one hit, I'd start over, right? But praise God that, that that's not what our life is called to be, right? We're not called to be perfectionists. In fact, the only one who's ever lived perfectly is Jesus. We're just called to take up our cross and follow him. And we do that with grace and with mercy. We do that with forgiveness because he is faithful to forgive us. And so in him we have redemption. That term redemption really denotes liberation or deliverance from bondage or imprisonment, even with, with a steep or heavy price. So uh, a few weeks ago we did a Seder feast which celebrated Israel's deliverance from Egypt, right? In which... Um, a lamb had to be sacrificed, the Passover lamb, in order for the families of Israel not to experience the heartache that the families of Pharaoh and Egypt went through. Here, redemption is associated with forgiveness of our sins. Our, our greatest need is peace with God because we rightly deserve his judgment for our sins, and yet Jesus has paid the price for our sins on the cross. We have been redeemed. Notice how he says that. In him we have redemption. This is not we hope for redemption or we might have redemption. This is we have been redeemed. It's not a hope. Adoption and redemption are present realities. Trust the Lord in that. Notice what Paul says also to the Colossians uh, in Colossians chapter 1, verses 13 to 14, he says, He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, 
the forgiveness of sins. If you are in Christ, the Bible says you are redeemed, you are forgiven, that is your true reality. And it's all because God is a God who is full of grace. Is this not causing you to like stir and like want to stand up and start singing? Right? Like I'm waiting for the first person to start standing up and just start singing, right? Amazing grace or something, right? Because that's what Paul is doing. He's, he's just thinking about the fact that there's a God in heaven who has saved his soul, and he can't help but just emphasize and break out in praise of all that that entails. And so we get to the climax of the passage in verse 9 to 10. It says, He made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure that he purposed in Christ as a plan for the right time to bring everything together in Christ, both things in heaven and things on the earth in him. In other words, history has a purpose. It is going somewhere. There's not something about the future that Christians are unsure about. We know for certainty Jesus is coming. He will make all things new. In fact, Revelation 21, 22 talk about the new heavens and the new earth. God has revealed his eternal plan to us, and that plan centers on Jesus. So regardless of how good or bad we believe our world presently is, the Bible declares the future is bright. No amens to that? The future is bright for believers. What is the plan? To unite all things in Christ, things in heaven and things on earth. Paradise was lost through Adam and Eve, but one day it will be restored through Jesus. Look at verses 11 and 12. It says, In him we also have received an inheritance because we were predestined according to the plan of the one who works everything in agreement to the purpose of his will, so that we who are already put our hope in Christ might bring praise to his glory. Again, he's summarizing adoption and election, which are part of the divine plan of history. The Bible is very clear. Once God plans it, nothing can stop it. In fact, one of my favorite words is thwart. Nothing can thwart the plan of God. This should give us, again, hope. Believers have a future. We have an inheritance. God is working all things for his glory so that Jesus will receive all praise. And finally, the last point here is that God is worthy of our praise because the Spirit seals us. Again, we have the Father choosing us, we have the Son redeeming us, and we have the Holy Spirit sealing us in our salvation, which again shows why he is so worthy of our praise Verse 13 and 14, he says, In him you were also sealed with the promised Holy Spirit when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and when you believed. Again, notice your responsibility. You have to hear the gospel, and you have to believe, which means someone has to tell the gospel and call for a response. Again, divine sovereignty, absolutely. Human responsibility, absolutely. And they're both here together. He says, the Holy Spirit is the down payment of our inheritance until the redemption of the possession to the praise of his glory. Paul, again, uses we, you language throughout this passage because he's talking about the fact, again, that that Israel and Gentiles are now brought together and that that is the mystery of God, right? In the Old Testament, uh, the Israelites were the chosen people of God, set apart to be holy, a holy nation for the Lord and to be separate from the rest of the nations. But as you go through the Old Testament, you find out they didn't do a very good job. In fact, they reject the covenant with the Lord, and they are kicked out of the nation of Israel. And God 
even then promises to bring them back. And as he is promising to bring them back, he begins to give promises about some new covenant, not some, the new covenant that's going to happen. And there's just subtle hints in there about the nations being included and the Gentiles being included. And that really goes back to the stem where Abraham is promised, Abraham and you all nations will be blessed. How does all of this come to fruition? Paul is saying it all comes through the gospel and through the work of Jesus. The Holy Spirit is the seal of our salvation. A seal is um, a mark of ownership or authenticity, right? Our seal is internal, which God puts his spirit within our hearts. Now, that's really unique because in the Old Testament, none of the believers in the Old Testament had the Holy Spirit within them. If you go back and read, it always mentions how the Spirit would come upon them, but would never be within them. And Jeremiah, Isaiah, Ezekiel, when they're looking again towards what's going to be new about the new covenant, they begin to emphasize, you'll no longer need to have people teach you because the Spirit will be inside of you. That's in Jeremiah chapter 33. And so what marks new covenant believers from the old covenant? The Holy Spirit lives inside of us. And again, this is what was promised in the Old Testament, through the prophets concerning the new covenants. And so, again, he mentions the human responsibility. He says, you, when you heard and when you believed. Again, the Bible calls us to action. It's not just about having head knowledge. When you have head knowledge and it doesn't make it to your heart, you don't have action. Instead, you have apathy. But when, it, when the knowledge that you have in your head makes it down to your heart, it can't help but then affect your hands and your feet and your mouth and going and telling. And, and this is why I would say, like, there is no one program for evangelism that will help the local church. But there is something that will help every believer. The more we love Jesus, the more we won't be able to help but to share that love with others. The more our head knowledge reaches our heart, the more it will reach our hands and our feet. And so you heard, you believed. This human responsibility that we are called to. And finally, the Holy Spirit, again, is the guarantee of our final inheritance. Until Jesus comes and restores all things, the Holy Spirit is supposed to be the foretaste of what heaven is like. And just think about that for the moment. Where does the Holy Spirit dwell? In believers. What are we doing right now? Gathering as what? Believers together. In other words, this gathering and this congregation with all congregations of Jesus are supposed to be showing the world this is what heaven is like. Which is why last week we mentioned like it should be a place of love, not hate. It should be a place of forgiveness, not bitterness. It should be a place of healing, not brokenness. Why? Because the Holy Spirit is among us. And so we were made for praise. We were made for worship. But the only way that our hearts will truly be satisfied is if they are worshiping the right object, which is Jesus. So I love how St. Augustine says this. In his confessions, he begins, and he says, You have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our hearts are restless until they find rest in you. Our hearts are restless until they find rest in you. So what's the big idea this morning? It's real simple. 
Right doctrine leads to joyful praise and humble holiness. Right doctrine, understanding, again, who, who I am, who Jesus is, what he's called me to do, what he has done for me. Once I begin to understand all of that, and I understand who I am really, that Jesus says, I am his son who has been forgiven, who has been redeemed, and called to live a blameless and holy life before him. Once I understand that in my head and it hits my heart, I can't help but then to joyfully praise him for who he is and then to humbly walk in holiness. So right doctrine leads to joyful praise and it leads to humble holiness. So a question again for you this week, what is then your next step with Jesus? Maybe this morning it's just confessing that maybe your doctrine hasn't been right about him. You've known, you've known about him, but really haven't really sought to know him through the means that he has given us, which is the Bible, his word, the scripture. Maybe it's that you've had some head knowledge of him, but you haven't let it hit your heart, and so you've struggled to have joy praising him. And if you're honest, you've struggled to, to walk in humility or walk in obedience. Whatever your next step is, with Jesus is. Take that today. Maybe it's, again, you, you know about Jesus. You would say that maybe you tip your hat to him. Like, you, yeah, I know who Jesus is. He's God. But you've never actually bowed the knee and submitted and, say, and said to him, I, I need you to redeem me from my sin. I can say this. He's ready and he's willing. His grace is sufficient. His love is eternal. And he can restore our worship back to what it rightly should be, to where we flourish and are restored into the image of God that he has made us, if we will submit to him. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word, and we thank you for this just joyful praise that Paul gives us here in chapter 1 of Ephesians. Uh, God, how can we not take time to praise you this morning in response? How can we not think about the ways that that possibly we fail to praise you, that we fail to take joy in, in just knowing who we are, knowing what you've done for us. And Lord, with, with just hearing your word today, would it, would it draw us to humble ourselves before you? And in humility, just to gladly embrace the holiness that you've called us to walk in. Lord, I know it won't be easy. I know that there will be constant failure along the way. But thank you that your grace is sufficient. Holy Spirit, would you just be evident and present in our lives and be pleased to conform us to the image of Jesus and be pleased to convict us of our sin, Lord, and to, to unite us as a, a body of believers in unity, Lord, to bring about just confession and repentance, Lord, for your sake and for your glory. And would you be pleased, God, to save sinners? Or when I just think about all the apartments, condos, houses, all the souls, Lord, that are around us right now who, who have no clue of your love and your grace for them, would you be pleased to use a humble people here to advance your kingdom?